the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome to this month's Anesthesia Journal Podcast. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Craig Lyons, who's an editor of Anesthesia Reports. Welcome, Craig. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Mike. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, I'm currently working in London with uh, Guidance St. Thomas's NHS uh, Trust uh, as their post-CCT uh, Airway Fellow. And as you said, I'm an editor with Anesthesia Reports. Uh, my main research uh, interest is in airway management, uh, and I also have a clinical interest uh, in paediatric anaesthesia. And um, you were our previous uh, journal fellow as well from a couple of years ago now, is that right? Yeah, during the pandemic, all those years sort of blur into one. But yes, I was I was with the journal um, as the fellow uh, for 12 months during the pandemic and, and had a great time, even when most of it was over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, it's great that you stayed on with us with Anesthesia Reports, which is an excellent journal and there's going to be lots more excellent work coming out of that journal in the future as well that I'm aware about. So um, it's, it's really great to have you there. So you were at the Difficult Hour Society meeting recently. Can you tell us three takeaway points that you're able to get from that? Yes, uh, in Birmingham last week and a, a really good meeting, I, I, I thought. Just I, think, I thought even better than, than previous years. Learning points or takeaway points uh, for me were firstly from speaking to people. I think it's quite clear that there's considerable variation in the practice um, um, of airway management and in the equipment available to people um, from hospital to hospital, whether that is videolaryngoscopes, disposable scopes, high-flow nasal oxygenation, um, and also the level of advanced airway expertise that exists within hospitals, I think, uh, just can vary quite considerably. Uh, and some places in the world, uh, you know, barely have pulse oximeters, whereas others have universal videolaryngoscopy. So mm. the, the context uh, in which airway management is discussed, I think, you know, matters and global guidelines are, are often there far so so far removed I think from context that, that I'm somewhat doubtful uh, of their value. Uh, second for me it's always good to see some science at annual scientific meetings and uh, Marilyn Johnson Fagerlin gave a keynote talk on her work on apneic oxygenation uh, so I think it, it's quite valuable to hear um, her somewhat cautious optimism um, uh, from her and other experts in the field, uh, which I think can help to counterbalance um, a bit of a runaway optimism that exists in the earlier stages of, of implementing a device. And third for me, certainly the, the Australian anaesthetist Richard Harris, he gave a, a keynote lecture on his involvement uh, in the rescue of a junior football team from a Thai cave, including the anaesthetic agency gave and airway management undertaken. And I think he showed really what can be achieved when an anaesthetist uses their knowledge, their skills and experience um, and, and stuff that's acquired from embracing their, their specialty. Um, and we can be technicians when we want to be, but some anaesthetists really have a talent uh, that enables them to make a tremendous impact uh, when the opportunity uh, arises. And, and that's sometimes in the most unconventional of ways. Yeah, I heard um, reports of, of people being so emotionally moved by that by that keynote talk. Um, so I'm sure it was amazing that you were, you were there to hear that. Uh, and it made me feel a little bit like I missed out, actually, and maybe wish that I was actually there. So maybe Daz next year, maybe I'll come. Maybe I'll come to the World Airway meeting. Who knows? For sure, yes. So, come along. Uh, London <laughs> next year and Italy the year after. You picked three papers for us from the issue. And the first one is a randomised control trial by Coppin et al. And they looked at the effect of the anterior quadratus lumborum block on morphine consumption in minimally invasive colorectal surgery. So you picked this paper for us. Have you have you performed this block before? Yeah, it is a block that I'm uh, familiar with. Um, there are alternatives, and and sometimes you know I do embark on fascia plane blocks, and then other times I don't. Uh, I haven't quite made my mind up as to as to how important they are to our practice. And do you think we need a block at all for surgery like this for minimally invasive colorectal surgery? 
I think I guess that that is the question that this study partly helps uh, to answer. Uh, to me, it looks like a bit of an option as part of a broader package, uh, not the centerpiece of analgesia um, and something that we can incorporate without much hassle um, and can also do without without significant downside. The paper itself was was powered for the primary outcome of morphine consumption. Without giving the main result away, there wasn't really much difference in terms of the primary outcome between the groups in the paper. Some people might think that the paper, that the trial wasn't adequately powered. What, what do you think about the the way the paper was powered and the calculation? Was it that case, or do you think it was appropriate? I think I think the powering was appropriate. They selected an alpha value uh, and a beta value that were standard fare, um, and they wanted to power it to show a thirty percent uh, reduction in morphine consumption. Um, they based their powering um, on a previous study, albeit a single one, um, and they did uh, sort of accommodate in their powering the ability to look at a subgroup um, based on body mass index. And, and that does raise some questions about use of uh, multiple comparisons. But on the whole, I, I think the study was was appropriately powered uh, just because they didn't um, detect a clinically significant difference in the groups. Um, it does not mean that it was underpowered. It's just that the difference wasn't there, I think. That's that's good to know, actually, because that I'm sure that will help people in their reading of the paper. It took me some time to sort of work that work through that myself. So that's that's really good to to know that you've looked into that, and um, and and I agree with with that conclusion as well. The primary outcome was morphine consumption at 24 hours postoperatively, and some people may or may not raise an eyebrow at that as a primary outcome for this study. What do you think about it? And are there any alternatives that might have been appropriate? So I think I think morphine consumption has some value as an outcome measure. There is a bit of an objective component to it, but I do think it is better suited um, at this stage as a secondary outcome measure. For example, you know, let's say for a minute that the study showed the opposite. It showed a difference. Let's say it did demonstrate um, that you needed, say, 30 milligrams of morphine in those who received a local anesthetic injection and then 50 milligrams of morphine in those who had been injected with saline. The question would then become, well, does that make a difference to patients anyway? If the pain relief provided is of similar quality, does the number of milligrams of morphine matter? And yes, Perhaps it does, I think, indirectly, but it needs to be measured and demonstrated for me in a patient-focused nature. So examples of that might include mobilization, medication side effects like nausea and vomiting, regional technique complications, and quality of recovery scores, of course, that encompass uh, many factors. And we're increasingly seeing these quality of recovery or QR, QOR scores, particularly QOR15, uh, being used in perioperative pain uh, research. And, and what this is, is basically a, a short 15-item questionnaire that looks at things like breathing, sleeping, personal care, as well as symptoms like pain and nausea or vomiting. The block itself, so the intervention, was, was put in to patients while they were awake before surgery. And half of these blocks were placebos. Do you think there are any issues around that? So I think there are ethical concerns, but overall, I think it's it's quite justifiable. You know, placebo may be harmful when it comes to regional techniques. The patient gets exposed to an intervention that has no therapeutic benefit, well, at least none from the drug itself, uh, but it could lead to serious harm. You might puncture the bowel, damage the kidney with this block, for example. However, that's quite rare, especially with ultrasound. Some suggest a bit of a halfway house, perhaps draping the site of the intervention, scanning with ultrasound and possibly even superficially piercing the skin with the needle. 
whereas others suggest a better comparator might be to use another valid technique that provides pain relief. So, for example, instead of uh, performing a sham block on these patients, you could perform a tap block. Um, that the need for placebo itself is overrated when it comes to procedures, people might say. Yeah, it's certainly not the, t the same as uh, taking a placebo tablet. Uh, of course, if you don't inject something, the person performing the procedure is not blinded, and this can cause challenges uh, in other ways. It might influence their care of the patient and would preclude them from measuring the outcomes uh, of the intervention. And for the patient, if a block is being done awake, um, they will perceive that there is an intervention happening. And if you don't do that for half of those patients, that may influence their perception of how much pain relief uh, they are receiving. So the purest way of figuring out if a block is therapeutic benefit is likely to be with a sham block as the comparator. Uh, and, and maybe these stepping stones are necessary to form good evidence. Um, it's perhaps better than drawing conclusions from less robust means and then subjecting many thousands of patients to the intervention outside of a clinical trial setting where individuals are also less likely to be expert in the performance of that block. Wow, so that raises all sorts of questions that I've not even thought about before in terms of undertaking research in regional anaesthesia. And it just goes to show the sort of benefits from considering these points and these papers. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. What for you was the, were the main clinical take-home messages from this paper? For me, I think like much of what I read on, on fascial plane blocks, particularly abdominal fascial plane blocks, is I think the evidence falls a bit flat. Uh, and whilst I do perform them sometimes, I think it's hard to be critical of those anaesthetists who do not. Um, at best, I think they might bring a little bit of benefit within a broad pain regimen and importantly to very little harm. But I think this study, like many others for me, underscores the fact that some people have a level of enthusiasm when it comes to fascial plane blocks that I think is disproportionate to the evidence. And I don't see them as being transformative for patients. Um, it's the minimally invasive surgery that is the transformative part. Next, now we're going to move on to some uh, letters which feature in the issue. For me, these are fascinating because we're getting a bit of a flurry at the moment of uh, airway letters. These letters uh, that we're going to talk about today focus on esophageal intubation, video laryngoscopy, and exhaled carbon dioxide waveform ca uh, capnography. So it's fair to say, I think, that debates on all things about the airway are, are a very much alive and well in 23 and 24, aren't they? You know, for, for an anaesthetist reading the journal, um, it is often, you know, they would say at uh, the area that they might enjoy the most to read short pieces of things that are of great clinical relevance to them and often do not require advanced knowledge or advanced statistical skills um, to feel like the articles relate uh, to you and your practice. We all manage airways every day. Um, and so when people speak in a common sense fashion about the challenges that we face, I think uh, the reader finds that quite relatable. Yeah, it's really nice to see some of the sort of um, debates going backwards and forwards on on various different topics. The first paper is a what we call at the journal a science letter, and science letters are preliminary pieces of research reporting data, not quite enough for a full paper, perhaps, but original data reported nonetheless. And, and this was a, a letter on UK-wide rates of video laryngoscopy use and barriers to universal uptake. And one of the findings for me was that the authors found significant variation in the use of video laryngoscopy uh, between study sites in the UK. And there was no clear geographical or, or any other association that they're able to pick out. Craig, were we able to pick out any trends from the data that was presented here? The, the well, the data is quite quite summarised uh, in its nature, and the hospitals are anonymised, um, and so we don't have access to the individual patient data. But uh, on on the whole, 
videolaryngoscope use appeared to vary little with intubator experience, for example, um, from junior trainees through to consultants. Uh, and the authors noted that in the quartile of sites reporting the lowest rates of videolaryngoscope use, that there was a higher incidence uh, of VL use amongst senior trainees compared with other groups. Uh, and, and so there was sort of a hypothesis uh, uh, demonstrated that the, the airway management of senior trainees may be driving change uh, in those centres where videolaryngoscopy use is the least uh, common. Uh, it's worth noting that the study from which this retrospective analysis was done uh, looked at adult patients only uh, requiring general anaesthesia. So we're not talking about paediatrics. We're also not talking about obstetric procedures uh, or airway management that has happened in the ED, ICU or ward level care either. Uh, but of course, this is the bread and butter of our practice, patients coming for elective general anaesthesia and how we manage their airways. And one of the purposes of this study, uh, as the authors point out, was that it predates the recent Puma guideline on uh, esophageal intubation. Do you think this will be a useful historical cohort on which we're able to look back at perhaps in the future and see if the Puma guidelines actually did change practice? Somewhat. Uh, I think it's one of the many checkpoints against which changes over time can be measured. Clearly, it was at a time when a pandemic was influencing airway management. Uh, and to make a reliable comparison in future, you need to collect data the same way from the same patient cohorts and the same hospitals. Uh, I think it would be erroneous, actually, to attribute change solely to the Puma guidelines or even primarily to the Puma guidelines when use of videolaryngoscopes was already on an increasing trajectory. Uh, I think many anaesthetists don't appreciate the universal video laryngoscopy emergency, because, perhaps because there isn't one, uh, and many more can't hear uh, the alarms being sounded because they're too busy anesthetizing patients. They just put in the tube and get on with it. Uh, they, yeah. they manage the airway quite sensibly, and they don't even know what Puma is. There were lots of other opinions expressed in the other letters in the issue as well on fairly similar thing, themes. So there was an editorial in the previous uh, issue by Bramley and Smith, which has actually attracted quite a lot of attention on social media, where they argue for the continued use of clinical signs to confirm tracheal intubation. And I'm going to be very careful about the way that I word that, and perhaps we'll pick up on that later. Mm. And in, in this issue, there's a letter from Buchanan and Scott, and they seem to be supportive. Uh, so what do you think about that? And do you, who do you agree with? I think all of these authors have constructed commentary that is quite carefully considered. Uh, and I agree with them for the most part. I agree that clinical signs have value, including at the time of intubation. But I do not see much value in clinical signs for the purpose of identifying tracheal intubation itself, but for the exclusion of other things, for example, endobronchial intubation, especially in paediatric practice. And I don't think clinical signs should ever be uh, interpreted in isolation and that capnography is king. Now, of course, there is a risk that if you use clinical signs for one purpose, it can influence your decision making on other matters, even sub subconsciously. Uh, but even when it comes to esophageal intubation, clinical signs are not necessarily without value. To be clear, I think you should not use clinical signs to support a tube's position in the trachea. Uh, just because you see tube misting, you shouldn't be reassured uh, based on the evidence that we have, which is very poor, by the way. However, the lack of misting alone, for example, would make you suspicious that your tube is in the wrong place. And that suspicion is good. And that point of view is supported by the meta-analysis on clinical signs. But I do think, you know, the capnography should always be center stage, not clinical signs 
means not ultrasound. Uh, if you ain't got a trace, figure out why. And yes, maybe the sampling line isn't working or maybe it's kinked, but you can check that within a few seconds. And if you have no trace and your patient is hypoxemic, then no amount of clinical signs for me can ever justify leaving that tube in place in my view. But that stethoscope may assist you with your identification of the tension pneumothorax that led to the cardiac arrest, for example. Um, and I, I would say that it is my personal view only um, that in cardiac arrest without immediate resolution or a definite cause like massive hemorrhage, that a flexible bronchoscope should be passed through the tube and additional evidence obtained that the tube is in the trachea. And this might avoid delayed recognition of esophageal intubation and is a more robust measure than a check with a laryngoscope. It might also identify an unexpected cause for the arrest. And external reviews, I think, may judge that a tube was esophageal and it may or may not have been. Um, and I think it's good for the patient and the clinician uh, to have evidence that this was never the case or that it was recognised and rectified. And of course, the most recent association Menistas guidelines on monitoring, and people people might have missed this, it was quite subtle, recommend that a flexible bronchoscope is an essential piece of equipment in the anaesthetic room, which yeah. I, 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 I do agree, actually, that uh, flexible bronchoscopy is a really, really important uh, tool in uh, airway management for, for, for lots of reasons. But, but going back to the... Um, original systematic review and meta-analysis from Hansel et al. Uh, the, the author group have actually um, written a response to uh, some of the uh, letters and editorials that have come in about it. And they very much refer to some of these examination techniques as an ancillary uses. You know, for example, you point out listening to the chest to exclude pneumothorax, et cetera. And that's an ancillary use of clinical examination findings. And they're very clear that they, they feel that focus should be on whether clinical signs are used to exclude esophageal intubation. Do you think this is a good example of perhaps some readers misinterpreting what the original meta-analysis said and, and maybe interpreting things a little bit wrong or, or taking some of those interpretations maybe a little bit too far? I think so. Um, I think sometimes I'm reading correspondences and articles and tweets of people who uh, come at things with the notion that they're disagreeing agreeing with with one another and in fact many of these viewpoints can be uh quite uh compatible uh with with one another um i i think you know we, we have made at the same time uh some things that are quite simple or some anesthetic scenarios that are simple in ma on many occasions into things that are maybe quite complex i think we overemphasize for example the frequency with which tube removal is very high stakes clearly if i've done an awake tracheal intubation for a difficult airway and i don't immediately get a co2 trace i might want to put the scope back down for a few seconds before simply taking the tube out but scenarios like this are rare uh, and when i read about airway disasters it seems to be me to me uh, to be more about failure to follow basic principles than all of these uh, esoterica uh, and i think we are making simple things a bit too complex uh, the solution is to be taking the tube out and not to be performing blood gases to see if it is in the right place, uh, which I don't think is scientifically sound in any case. On that final point um, about cardiac arrest, can you sort of explain briefly what some of the controversy has been around in terms of the use of exhaled carbon dioxide in that scenario? 
to, to, to think about it from a basic perspective, cardiac arrest leads to a loss of CO2 trace, and then the commencement of chest compressions leads to a return of that trace. If you have blood going round and round, then you should have carbon dioxide coming out of the lung when you ventilate it. Um, and that trace may be attenuated, but it should not be, be absent. And if it is absent, the tube is in the esophagus until proven otherwise. And much of the controversy arises with what to do uh, in that scenario. And the best solution, I think, might not be to try and investigate that, as I said, but simply to remove the tube from wherever it may be and go again. Or maybe just use a supraglottic airway device uh, as, an, as an interim measure. So again, I think we're overemphasizing the frequency with which this tube removal is, is, you know, all of a sudden a very high stakes procedure. I mean, it wasn't there 30 seconds ago. Take it out and take another look at it. Uh, and... The, the problem is that if we start using multiple measures to see if a tube is in the right place, what we will end up is with is erroneous justifications for why the capnograph is not there. And I think that partly applies um, to the use of video laryngoscopes to see where your tube is. I mean, you take a video laryngoscope and you attempt to put a tube through the vocal cords and then you're unsure if it's there. I don't think the solution is to take the device that led you to put the tube there in the first place to see if you've actually put it there. What you're using to place something and what you're using to confirm where something is should be an entirely separate thing. And if we have multiple tests and they start to become in conflict with one another and we start to cast aside the more reliable tests like capnography in favour of other things like, oh, I can hear chest rise and oh, look at this view on the video laryngoscope. What we might start to do is leave more tubes in the wrong place when we should, in fact, have taken them out. And there have been a couple of reported deaths now whereby a tube placed in the esophagus has been judged by a number of individuals on video laryngoscopy to actually be in the trachea and that has only been recognized at a later stage so not every you know novel approach to things or alternative approach to things will bring you to the right place it might in fact bring multiple things into conflict with one another and then if you were unable to prioritize them or set them into the broader picture of the patient you may choose the ones that favor your own perspective i think it's definitely fair to say craig that Debate on airway controversies is alive and well in 2023 and 2024, and I'm really looking forward to seeing these conversations continue into the January issue and well beyond that next year as well. We'll move on to the last paper, which is really interesting. Uh, it's from David Sidebofen, who I've corresponded with uh, privately over various things that we've um, written together and done together. He is, he is amazing. He is a polymath. He's knowledge of transesophageal echocardiography is one thing, but he's also an expert in statistics and he writes statistics papers for us, uh, which are incredible. So he's and a colleague, Barlow, have attempted to explain why large effect sizes seem to get smaller and even disappear over time and, and use some really nice examples to show that. So why did you pick this paper and, and why did you find it interesting? I found this paper interesting because I think papers like this are really good quality, but they often go under uh, the radar. And, and it takes a step back, this paper, and looks at a question I often had on my mind during my work as a trainee, especially in intensive care medicine. And that is, 
How does something lauded as a lifesaver one minute, one minute end up regarded as without benefit the next um, for patients that did not really change much in the interim? Uh, and the authors uh, of this editorial give many examples of that, one being the impact of dosing of continuous venovenous hemofiltration on acute kidney injury outcomes in ICU. What we had was in 2000, a large, uh, well, a relatively large sized clinical trial showing survival dis differences that were quite significant between patients who received a higher dose. And then a decade later, the renal trial showing that there was no difference uh, whatsoever in 90 day mortality. So you had an absolute difference of 16% in survival in one study, and then it's non-existent in the other. And, and why is that? Was it related to enrollment criteria, specifics and outcomes like mortality cutoffs, were different forms of bias in play? And in this editorial, the authors focus on the contribution of study sizes and significance testing and broaden it out to relate to, to research in general. And I think it goes some way towards explaining why evidence-based medicine is a bit more dynamic uh, than we'd like to think. Uh, what the authors looked at here was they simply said, or simply put in a smaller study, there needs to be a larger difference between two groups for that difference to reach a statistical significance. So when a small study is published with a p-value of less than 0.05 traditionally, an impressive effect, effect size is apparent. And this can entice us then into thinking we've found the next big thing. Um, whereas the, the true value of the variable um, is approached with only repeated measurements, i.e. repeated studies. So as time passes, the initial, you know, the initial effect size, the size of that observed effect, that subsequently shrinks uh, and there's regression to a mean. And with that, ultimately, what is said to be a regression to the truth. To me, one of the points I found interesting was that we shouldn't just always take things at face value in terms of the numbers that come out of a paper. And there's quite a lot of interpretation we have to do around that. Uh, one of the things to always think about is biological plausibility. So if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and we see that often, I, I guess, with secondary outcomes. And this is obviously the reason why we ask authors to register trials, because we get primary outcome modification, for example. But do we sometimes fall into the trap of overanalyzing and interpret, interpreting secondary outcomes in this way that Cy Botham's describing? For sure. I think, you know, secondary outcomes are sometimes an opportunity for authors to go on a bit of a treasure hunt in, in search of significance. But the, the more questions you ask, the more p-values you will get, and the more likely you will find some that reach apparent statistical significance, especially when that threshold of significance is not adjusted for the fact that you've asked all these questions. You need to adjust for making multiple comparisons. Um, but, you know, the study centers around the primary outcome and that should remain the focus. The problem with multiple comparisons, comparisons is even an issue for the primary outcome at times uh, due to a lack uh, of adjustment. So one of, one of the conclusions for me was that it's probably time now to stop changing practice as described by Cy Bofen in the paper after single positive randomized control trials. And there's some really nice examples of that in the paper. Um, but do you, do you think this has also got impl implications for power in future trials? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, using small studies as the foundation for sample size uh, calculation for larger studies, it's risky business. You know, if you anticipate big differences, you will require smaller sample sizes and re researchers risk being enticed by, by data 
that make a study more achievable to carry out. They go with it because they see larger enrollment as unachievable, too daunting, too much effort to risk being left empty handed um, with a negative result. And if the effect size was originally inflated, there is a greater chance the larger subsequent study will be underpowered if you go on that basis. Uh, and the study will not then be able to demonstrate smaller differences, which may be clinically important. Um, so even when those differences, those clinically important differences are present, they will not reach statistical significance. And I think we owe it, you know, to participants in clinical research to make a best effort not to underpower that research. They sign a form and they place their trust in researchers, sometimes with their lives. And it should not be to answer a question through a method that is doomed from day one in its sample size calculation. Thank you very much, Craig. I feel like we've covered quite a lot there in half an hour. We've started talking about regional anesthesia and blocks trial design for RCTs. Talked about a lot of modern airway controversies and we've finished off with statistics. So we've, we really have covered nearly everything in half an hour. So it's been really good fun. We have for you in a month's time, a special collection of articles that we'll be publishing on sustainable anesthesia so we're really looking forward to that but for now i'll say goodbye thank you very much craig thanks mike uh, we'll see you next time thank you the anesthesia podcast